Welcome to my podcast, Today's Dream, Tomorrow's Reality. My name is Vicki Poole. I'm a life coach, health coach, and a hypnotist at the Enlightened Peach. And this podcast is all about embracing our mosaic life. And some of you may ask, what is a mosaic life? Well, it's recognizing that all the pieces of our life, the good, the bad, the indifferent, have all come together to make us who we are. Change any one thing and we are different. With that in mind, I invite you to embrace your perceived imperfections and celebrate who you are. This podcast is unedited and raw, just like life. I will be your host, and I have a special guest from time to time. As a matter of fact, I have an amazing guest for you today, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. But if you have any ahas or questions, please leave comments or a voice message and remember to like, share, whatever the little things are, um, so we can get this out even more. So now let's get started. So this gentleman right here is um, uh, Scott Burns, and um, I'll let him tell you a little bit about himself, but I'll start off with, um, he does an amazing thing, he and his wife, Tony, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and they travel on their Harleys and talk to people about love, and that's one of the things that kind of drew me to him. And um, so that's how he became a guest on this podcast. But I really want to let him tell you his story. And I'll be honest, I tend to be a little bit of an interrupter. Um, you might say something that just all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, what? And then we might end up taking a little diversion somewhere else. Um, and as long that's as you're fine. okay with that. Okay. <laughs> yep. It's like having a conversation between two storytellers. That's, that's to right. totally expected. <laughs> Yes. So um, why don't you um, maybe start with how did you get to a place where you started getting into this idea of this was something you wanted to do? Or did you know that at a very young age? Uh, no. As far as the project itself, um, Journeys to Love really, really came together. That's the, the overall project name for the work that we do. Um, came together at the end of 2015, and okay. I was getting ready to retire from teaching. I was an educator for 24 years, and uh, middle school English mostly, and mm -hmm. <laughs> still came out perfectly normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you say. And, uh, yeah, well, it's a relative <laughs> term, I know. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, my wife and I, we had, um, because I'm primarily a writer, my MFA is in creative writing. As I was nearing the end of re retiring from teaching, I thought, you know, well, I'm going to go write a book. And what do we want to write a book about? Well, my wife and I had been together for, we've known each other since junior high. We've been married 40 years. Um, we're avid motorcycle tourists. And we thought, well, we'll combine our interests because as we've gotten older, People continued to ask us, whether it was in the music business or in teaching or other fields, they kept coming to us with this question, what's your secret? You know, they wanted to know, you know, as if we were in a position to tell them, well, here's how you love people and here's how you live your life. Well, we're not qualified to do that. But we thought, wouldn't it be fascinating to go out and ask the people that we know could answer that question? All over the country, as many diverse people and places and cultures and lifestyles and events as we could discover and look for stories from couples to see if we could answer that question. You know, well, what's their secret? Maybe there's an amalgamation we can come up with and say, here it is. Here's this big secret to love that everybody's after. So it kind of started as a sort of romantic project. You know, the two of us riding Harleys and 
you know, collecting stories and doing photography. And well, by the second year of that project, we had discovered that there is a profound sense of loneliness and disconnect across the country. And the more stories we collected and the more people we started to talk to, the more we started to encounter, people wanted to hear our stories first. It was almost like, you know, from the Taos Pueblo to military bases in Virginia to the Black Baptist churches in Alabama, there was this running thread between all these cultures and people where it was almost like seeking affirmation that the world that they lived in was still okay. Mm -hmm. People still loved each other and it was still a good place and they had a place and they belonged in it. And and it made them feel sort of, you know, we talked earlier before you started recording about that sense of connection. It made them feel reconnected. And they wanted to hear all of our stories before they'd even share theirs. And we thought, well, we're onto something much more profound here. Um, and so we uh, spent a couple more years on the road collecting those stories and, and putting material together for a book that by that point had a much different focus. Well, then 2020 rolled around. And as it did for most of us, the world ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that brought us off the road. We couldn't travel. You know, there was all the travel restrictions. And and so that gave me an opportunity to really devote myself to writing the book, which is now in the hands of literary agents. It's called A Map of Souls, The Quest oh, cool. for Love's True Story. And in following up with all this sort of empirical evidence that we had about the nature and role and purpose of love, it put me into contact with people in fields I had never considered asking about the question of love, people in neurosciences and quantum physics and uh, uh, animal behavior, um, all these different fields. And we had talked to faith leaders, philosophers, lay people, and now we had all this scientific evidence too. And so I started thinking, what is it that all these people, you know, we started out looking for the secret. Well, now we're onto a much bigger secret. What are the threads that run between all these different disciplines and schools of thought and cultures and people and and ways of life? What can they agree on that leads us to an answer to really that would be a big one? What can they agree on, right? (laughs) Yeah, which essentially leads us to the biggest question that we were essentially asking, which is, well, what is love? And if we can answer that, we might know what to go do about it. But it's funny, every every person that I have asked, whether it's in public speaking or in our journeys or in the interviews, the other interviews and encounters that I've done, that we've asked that question, what is love, has given us a different answer. Yeah. Well, Which you to know- me is fascinating. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I'll just share with you real quick. You said that, you know, people were coming to you guys and wanting to know, you know, what's your secret and everything. So mm-hmm. I've been a single woman for quite a few years now. And one of the things somebody told me was find somebody, a married couple or something and find out what their secret is. So I knew this woman <laughs> and um, I asked her to lunch one day and we sat down to lunch and we're just chit chatting and everything. And I said, you know, I really wanted to ask you some questions about your marriage and things like that. And she stopped and she looked at me and she said, why? And I start telling her, she said, oh, Vicki, she said, no, you don't want to talk to me. She said, out there, we look great in here. Not so much. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, she said, it looks good, but it's not good. And that's just what we do to make things feel better. And that was such an epiphany for me to realize that sometimes things are not as they appear to be. You know what I mean? Yes. And so it was like, um, it gave me this different thing that maybe 
my perception of things is not always what it is. And um, so it made me start and didn't give me a sense of, you know, everybody's lying or anything like that. But it did give me a thing of, you know, so many people go through life with putting on a mask and portraying what they think people want them to be and everything. And they're not true to who they are. And that's what really woke me to thinking that I want to be my authentic self. And maybe I've been doing the same thing in my life with putting this, um, this filter up. And maybe that's why as I was searching for this love relationship and everything, and I couldn't seem to find it was because I wasn't being real. Does that make sense? It did be, but I, one of the things that you said is really interesting, and it's something that we come across when people, you, when we do, especially when I do public speaking and people find mm-hmm. out we're basically love researchers, there's an automatic assumption that love has to do with relationships. That when mm-hmm. we talk about a love story, we're talking about a relationship with another person that has to do with feelings and emotions and things that you do, and it doesn't. One of the key findings that we've had, that we've found, um, incidentally, <laughs> What led to this, and I warned you beforehand, this is all going to be stories as we go. Um, we asked we asked a Tibetan Buddhist monk at the Karma Triyanadharma Chakra Monastery above Woodstock, New York. I have the perfect hippie moment in your life. Start talking love stories with the Tibetan monk in a Buddhist monastery above yeah. Woodstock, <laughs> and you have arrived. But when we asked him that love is question, he said, love is, love is how we are. And I thought, well, that's beautiful and it's poetic and mm-hmm. you know it's okay. it's the kind of thing that sandalwood in a sense made out of real sandals sitting in trees say and i thought you know that's lovely it's but on then, the little tea bags <laughs> yeah it's a nice meme but i didn't really understand what he was talking about well two weeks later we interviewed a, a irish jazz singer at a, this remarkable place called dog the dog chapel in st johnsbury your sound is just a touch off now i i haven't changed anything hmm, it's interesting okay go ahead Okay. Anyway, oh, and it's, it's we, asked, we asked we asked Kathy, the Cyrus Jazz singer, the same question. She said, love is a way of walking in the world. And I thought, well, that's beautiful and poetic, but I really didn't understand what she was saying. A month later, we're interviewing Reverend Cromwell Handy, who's the current pastor at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Martin Luther King's former church, who's one of our icons for this project. And we asked him that question. He said, love is the way that we stay connected with the world. I thought, well, all these people are basically talking about unity. They're really talking about the same thing. Maybe they're on to something that I'm overlooking. Well, then all these this is all those conversations with people in quantum physics. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with with quantum physics and the A double little. slit experiment and the double slit experiment. Well, yeah. without going into too too much detail, what quantum physics is basically showing us through you know concepts like super entang- superposition and entanglement is the universe really is all one thing. And if that's the case, and consciousness it, it really evolves and controls and affects that one thing, and love is part of consciousness. I think we're onto a trail here that shows us love really is all one thing. And so what that led us to, what one of, one of the precepts of the book is that love is not an emotion. It's not an action. It's a state of being. It's the way that we are. And one of the ways when, especially psychologists tend to argue with me quite a bit about this, which is a fascinating conversation. And it makes total sense because psychologists deal with emotion. 
Mm-hmm. And so everything boils down to an emotional content. But I say, no, think of love in the same sense you think of a sense of humor. We confuse love with the way love makes us feel. When we ask people what love is, and they say it's trust, it's honesty, it's compassion, it's communication, it's duty. They give us all these wonderful metaphors, but no, those are the way that love makes you feel. Think of your sense of humor as a sense of humor and emotion. Not really, but it sure can make you feel a lot of different ones. If you feel funny or witty or amused or, or you know, but those aren't your sense of humor. Those are the emotions that it, that it engenders. And so that one finding is one of four key findings that we found about love that, that sort of, you know, we're trying to keep, take people out of this idea that your love depends on a relationship with someone else. It doesn't. It can certainly broaden that relationship and you can awaken the love that's within them. But your love is not dependent on other people. It's intrinsically part of who you are. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that um, because it's one of those, um, the the things that if you have to have love within yourself, even to be able to love someone, because if you don't love yourself, you're coming from a um, uh, a place of lack already and you need to be mm-hmm. full you're not have your cup full yourself is that what you're saying in a way and it, something else interesting you said there i did a uh, another guest spot yesterday and the, one of the fellows asked me on the that website if how we deal with hate well isn't hate you know just the opposite of love i said no hate is very much an emotion love is not if you want to look for and i don't know why you would but if you want to look for the, what the opposite of something is you look for its lack the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is lovelessness. I would have thought apathy. apathy. Yeah, apathy, ignorance, sometimes fear, but yeah. certainly not hate. <laughs> yeah, hate's a very strong emotion. <laughs> D- different ballpark. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. Well, um, I want to kind of go back um, to when you were when you were young. Did you have a a sense of love or was that something that you grew to be looking for? Or is that even? Hmm. (laughs) I'm not sure I could really answer that question because, you know, the. um, It's it's funny. We were talking again before you started the recording about the sort of they call it the zero to hero story Um, and people find those things compelling. Uh, you know, the, the you you brought up an example of a cancer survivor who then goes on to counsel yeah. other cancer survivors because of that travail, because of that that problem, that history that they had gone through. It both lends credibility and empathy to the position that they're taking. And when I got into the public speaking to um, try try to bring some of the messages that we found through Journeys to Love to to the helping professions and to education and places where it could have a sort of practical impact, I looked at my wife and I said, I, you know, I just I don't have that. I just don't have that sort of, you know, deep, dark past. And she stopped what she was doing. She dropped her glasses. She looked at me and she says, are you effing kidding me? (laughs) And then she reminded me about my own path because, yeah, my dad was uh, my dad was a violent drunk, um, tried to tried to murder my mother. He was a pedophile. Um, By the time I was 13, he was pretty much already gone. And he ended up, you know, drinking and drugging himself to death. Um, and later in life, later in teenage years, before I was 20, I found myself following in those same kind of footsteps, you know, addictive, addictive behaviors 
and to, you know, we have this nature and nurture argument, um, but I got the flip side, the the worst side of both of those coins. So it was almost predestined. I was going to end up following in those footsteps. And it was really the love of my wife and my family and, you know, my dogs and, and the people around me that eventually led me to see a better path. And so I would say it wasn't something I was ever looking for, but it was certainly something that redeemed me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why in our work now, when we're on the road, the stories that I find most compelling are those redemption tales. Yeah. You know, the, the, the ones, you know, where people, they hit that rock bottom and then some loving person or action or, or being uh, managed to resurrect them. Those stories to me are, are deeply compelling. Yeah. And I had to thank my wife for reminding me about the past. Go, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a there was a few a few yeah, bumps. There in the was road a little bit of a there. snafu back there, I believe. Um, well, because I love the stories, and I think we talked about this too. I love the stories where somebody has had horrible things that have happened in their lives. Not that I'm glad that they had horrible things, but that they come to the mm -hmm. end of that realizing that without those things happening, they wouldn't have taken this path that they love and mm -hmm. that it gives them um, a, a sense of, I'm almost glad in some way that this happened. And um, I even had a, a gentleman that had um, had diabetes and had to have his, his leg amputated. And he said that that was the best thing that ever happened to him because it mm -hmm. changed the trajectory of his life. And so it, I'm always fascinated with with stories of overcoming something and mm -hmm. seeing this light because I think some of the time it's because there are so many people that have the same kind of story, but then they have this thing about that is why they haven't done anything. And that's why they are in a bad place and everything. They use it as an excuse instead of something mm -hmm. that actually helps them move forward. And I mm -hmm. love the move forward thing. Right. Well, and you hope and this, you know, part of the spirit of what we do is that we're hoping by connecting so many of these stories with people that they'll see across cultures, especially across cultures and races and ages and ethnicities and, and socioeconomic barriers that so many of these stories, whether they're redemptive tales or lifelong love and devotion, duty stories, um, are ones that are common among all human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, those barriers uh, hold no sway. They're, they, they don't, they're, they're no obstacle to love. And, you right. know, we, we're really connected through those tales. Um, you know, when you brought up the redemption story, if you have just a moment, one that might particularly touch you, we had, uh, um, we, were in, we rode through the Upper Peninsula and we we're on our way down to Detroit and we stopped in, uh, and I want to say Saginaw, but it wasn't Saginaw. It's the northern part of Michigan. Anyway, um, the waitress, we, we talk to everybody. We find cops and, and newspapers and uh, um, churches are usually our best sort of community. They know everybody, and especially mm -hmm. in a small community. And uh, wait staff are oftentimes because they know everybody in a town. We asked the waitress, you know, we told her what we did. And we said, you know, we're looking for you know, stories about what makes life worth living, what connects people here, you know, what, uh, and she said, I've got to have somebody, you, there's somebody you have to talk to. 
And uh, we interviewed this fellow in the kitchen. He was washing dishes in the place at the time. And then he invited us over to <laughs> taking the Harleys through places in the Michigan woods where no Harley was designed to go to this trailer <laughs> and found this fellow. And, and I don't want to give his name because he um, asked us to kind of remain discreet. I called him Alexander Manette in an article I wrote about him because uh, from the tale of two cities, literally was recalled to life. He grew up as a gangbanger um, in East L.A., had two teardrop tattoos. I don't know if you're familiar with, you know, in yes. prison, what those mean. His arms are covered in prison tats. Um, he had, you know, notches down one arm. Um, this is a guy that was road hard and put away wet. He had a violent past, a drug history. Had four kids um, from three different women, one of whom um, he took the fall for a drug conviction for her so that she could stay with their children. Because by this time he had the four kids and he wanted somebody to stay with them until he could get out of until one of them with that was out of prison. And he took the rap for her and then she abandoned him and the kids while he was in prison. Mm. Well, these children in four different foster homes managed to maintain contact with one another. And when the oldest was old enough to visit him, would bring him cards and letters and photos. And all four of these children managed to maintain contact with each other and with him. And when he got out of prison, the first thing he did was buy this godforsaken little plot of land in the Michigan woods and put a, a trailer on it, started building a house. And, and when we interviewed him, even a fellow that had been through this kind of hell in his life, he looked at us and he said, I'll spend the rest of my life making this up to them. Wow. And, and he was redeemed. He was, that's why I called him Alexander Manette, that idea of being recalled to life, redeemed through the love of others. You know, and those kids had no reason, no reason. He'd given them no reason to have that kind of connection with him, but they did. And he'll spend the, and I have no doubt that he'll spend the rest of his life making those kids' lives everything he can. Wow. It was just a staggeringly beautiful story. Yeah, you that's it's very uncommon to um more so than you would think. Really? That's nice yeah. to know. And th and that's one of the inspirational things we're trying to get across to people is, you know, we're we're so inundated anymore with stories about the things that divide us. And you know, we start one of our major problems societally right now is that we always start with the things that divide us. Mm -hmm. We want to know who you voted for and what kind of music you like. And, you know, are you in a mixed relationship of some kind? And, you know, what is it about you that I can find that I don't like? Instead of starting a conversation, one of our favorite conversation starters is, so who's the better cook? People love to talk about food. Mm -hmm. It brings us together. You know, yeah. ask them about their love story. Ask them about their dogs. People love talking about their dogs. You find the things that connect us first, and then it leads you to those deeper tales. And when you get into those deeper stories, you find out this human family is good, and it's healthy, and it's connected, and it's looking for ways to affirm that. And mm -hmm. we're kind of hoping to be that bridge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, when, we, when we were at that Buddhist monastery, they had one of, one of the most beautiful prayers they offered from one of the acolytes was, may I be a boat, a bridge, or a raft for all those who want to cross the water. And that's, oh, I love that's that. kind of... Kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I just had a thought just a second ago, but it poof, it went away. So <laughs> I'm glad that never happens to me. My my train of thought is never derailed. <laughs> never, 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 never. Um, well, 
So I know it's uh, when I was looking at your bio and stuff, it said that you work with um, educational professionals a lot to help them to um, help. Just tell me, what do you help them with? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, that's in the, in, the, in the public speaking arm of what I do. I have three major keynotes that I give. One is to people in the helping professions. And so that would be you know, psychologists, social workers, um, people in healthcare, uh, life coaches, um, uh, faith leaders. And those, you know, the, the applications of love to overcome practical applications of love in your personal life to be able to overcome the common barriers in the professions, which would be, you know, emotional burnout and compassion fatigue, um, uh, you know, the, the sort of ethical uh, boundaries that we have to cross sometimes, boundary issues themselves. Um, you know, there's some practical applications of this work in those fields. And education, because, you know, I have 24 years as an educator, it made sense to, to take that experience and the experience from Journeys to Love and say, you know, what is it that these two things have in common that we can offer? Well, that address is, is all about love, you know, it's called love, learning to love, loving to learn. Um, mm -hmm. Because most of us, if I asked you who your favorite teacher was, you probably have somebody pop into your head. Mm -hmm. Most people do. And, and those of us that are really fortunate, we have two or three of them. And what those people had in common is that they taught us, they made us bigger. They, they made us feel something inside. It wasn't what they taught necessarily. It was how they made us feel about ourselves. There was a bond of love there. We learn best from those that we love. Right. And we teach best the kids that we love. As a 24-year educator, I can tell you, I could reach the kids that I had that connection with a whole lot easier. I, I felt like I was more effective with them in the classroom. And that kind of connection doesn't have to happen by accident. Again, there's, there's practical ways of taking this knowledge and saying, now that I understand what love really is and how it works and that it doesn't depend on anybody else. And it's constantly there for me. It's available. There's another story I have to tell you. Okay. Love is available. Um, I'll, I'll come back to it. And the other one is the, the other keynote that I give is for um, basically spiritual seekers and people that are interested in consciousness studies. Because mo much of the science that we've gone through as part of this project and what went into the book um, it deals with consciousness studies and the link between love and consciousness and you know the unity of love. Um, and the idea that, you know, quantum physicists are really just Buddhists with better data. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I can so see that. That other, that other, I'm going to loop back to that other one, because one of the people and you, after listening to you talk, I think this is somebody you'd really enjoy. We interviewed a woman named Latanya Jones in Lexington, Kentucky. And Latanya is, she's an advocate for the families of death row inmates. Mm -hmm. um, she's the one that goes in and, and, you know, tries to counsel those families and tries to occasionally she's called in to testify as a character witness on behalf of people on death row. Um, and she had considering the situations and the people and, and the, the environment in which she works to have such a loving spirit, I thought was such a phenomenal thing, you know, to maintain that spirit and that sense of love. And when we asked her, she had a bunch of things I can tell you that were wise. But when we asked her that question, what is love? Her answer to us is she said, love is available. It's always there. And, and, and if you watch some of our videos on our YouTube channel, you can see this interview with her. She said, you know, the, the quote from her that I put in the book is she said, you know, we forget 
you know, there's all these negative things that happen to us. Like I got bills to pay or I got, you know, profiled by the police or there's all these things that can happen to us that are negative. And we, but we forget that there's always something else positive happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. But our attention is so diverted by, you know, this negativity. And then we bring that to the next person and it stops our ability to connect with that person through love. The love is always there. You know, I asked her, I, I got to share this with you because it was, this was so profound because I asked her, um, I'm, I, I grew up fairly conservative um, politically and <laughs> that's proven to give me a, to give a, an unusual perspective on this work because it's forced me to look at things that I always believed in a much different way. You know, the more people I've gotten to know. And I asked her because, you know, in my background, people were always pro-capital punishment. And I said, forgive me if I overstep. Um, And this is one thing we always tell people, I'm ignorant. I am gonna ask you a question that may overstep the bounds. And if I do, I'm sorry, but I'm curious. Aren't there instances or people, don't you run into people who say, well, this person committed an act that was so vile, so heinous, so so beyond the pale of humanity that they deserve this. This is what should happen to them. And she looked right at me after everything she'd been through and the murder cases she's worked on and losing her own family to, to a murderer. She looked right at me. She says, I have never met a monster. I have met people who have done monstrous things but I have never known a monster. I thought with well, that, that is an amazing thing to say, considering mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure. And I even told her, I'm not sure I can agree at this point. I hope, I hope that sometime in my life, I find it in my spirit to say there are no monsters because I'm not sure I believe that at this point, but I think that monsters can be redeemed as well. I hope so. You know. Mm-hmm. That would be a uh, that would be a good thing because that's definitely something that uh, gets dangled out there and um, shown to us more than the good things. Mm-hmm. And and I'll share well, real quick. You know, when thinking about that, suddenly I I remember years ago we had um, I had I had a, a client that had her husband was a, a teacher and. They only had one car and she was pregnant with their second or third child. And they were, they always gave to the church and they were always doing these things. And the school that it was a private school that her husband taught at, and he went to work one day and they gifted him a vehicle that they could, they could share. And the entire school, the students, their parents, the teachers, everybody had gotten together to raise the money without him even knowing it to give him this car um, because he had made such an impact on so many people's lives. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, I had a client who worked for a news station and she came in and this was right at Christmas time. And she asked me, she said, do you know of any really um, amazing stories that we, I might could do for the holidays. And I said, sure. And I told her all about this one, gave her the information of them. I called them to make sure it was okay for me to share. And um, so I didn't hear anything about it. So the next time I saw her, I said, well, what happened with the, the news story? She said, well, she said, I, um, I approached it and I, you know, I, I put it out there and everything, but my um, higher ups, wouldn't bite. It wasn't controversial. 
And so she wasn't allowed to report on this really uplifting, amazing story. I mean, cause there was a lot mm-hmm. more going on than just those things, but that's just the gist of sure. it. Um, because it wasn't going to sell, uh, get enough eyes on them. It wasn't horrific. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the times that I started recognizing how um, just because there's this, they're showing this big group of terrible things happening doesn't mean that there's not a bigger group over here of things that are good. It's just, they're not really, Absolutely. Yep. you know, bringing eyes to those. And so it's really mm-hmm. um interesting you know when you when you realize how they um, things are manipulated to show us the bad side like you said when people meet you know they're looking for the things that are they can that they can divide them and you know and a lot of the news media not to say that everybody does that but a lot of the news media is trying to is showing us the division as well right well, and, and what's doubly worrying about that is that, um, you know, the, the algorithms that select what kind of material we're seeing tend to all reverberate around the same echo chambers. So mm-hmm. even the negative stories that we're getting are all basically from the same cultural perspective and the same, you know, we're, 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 we're being molded into these tribes and then played against one another. And it's the friction between the heat of the friction between us is profitable. Yeah, those strong emotions, they keep eyeballs on the screen. And, you know, it's not a question of right or wrong to viewership. Right. (laughs) uh, To to a slightly lesser extent, um, another example of that, you know, when I told you in 2020, when we had to come off the road, um, it gave us the opportunity, gave me the opportunity to finish the book. Well, it also meant that, and and you probably ran into this in your profession too, professional associations um, all had to, and industries, all all those conventions and meetings and stuff stopped for a time. Well, that happened in the television and media industry too. And the major industry, television industry convention is called Real Screen. And that's where all the networks and the producers and the film companies and the writers, they all get together to pitch ideas and solve stories and whatnot. And so since that was all done, being done online, we had access to that. So we, we bought a ticket. And we got to go on real screen online. And, and we heard back from Tina Perry from the Oprah Winfrey Network, um, from uh, Magnolia, from Paramount, um, from all the major networks that all loved the work that we were doing. You know, I personally, we got some of the most beautiful personal rejections from, <laughs> <laughs> that you could possibly imagine, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Discovery Plus was calling us and going, God, we wish we could help you guys out because we just, you make us feel so good. And I go, I know because people want this, they need it. There's a hunger out there for it. But they said no, because right now with the way the market was, they were selling three kinds of shows. And this is why you're seeing this kind of TV today. Two years ago, when we when we did real screen, they wanted celebrity driven content. If you already if people already knew you, if you were Sylvester Stallone and you have beautiful daughters, you can get a reality show. Um, They wanted um, competition, anything that pits people against one another. Um, And they wanted what's called and We learned this term that still makes me laugh. It's called shiny floor. They wanted anything that's shiny floor. And that means anything that can be done in a studio environment where they can control everything in the a shiny floor would be like a game show or a talk show okay. or something 
tiny floor. And we thought, well, we're not any of those things. And they and people come to us and go, we know, we just wish we could do this, but we're constrained by what we think is going to be saleable. And I'm saying, and my point with them and why we're now pursuing an independent film instead of television is, well, what's saleable is what makes people feel deeply. There's no rule that says they have to feel anger deeply to be connected. Mm-hmm. They can also feel love and empathy and, and hope. I think a little hope right now, especially in the political season that we're getting ready to head into next year, a little hope's going to go a long way. Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting, but I grew up in a family of hairstylists, and um, oh, nice, <laughs> yeah, and we all worked together um, at a salon, um, and it was one of those little smaller, quaint salons, and we were approached by a company, and what was it called, Salon of the South or something like that. It was mm-hmm. a um, a reality kind of thing. So they approached us and asked us if we would participate. Well, yeah, that sounds cool, right? So yeah, they, sounds like fun. Yeah, so they come in and they bring their cameras and they want us working and everything. So we're working in the salon, we're doing hair and everybody already knows you know, that these camera people are out there. And what they were doing is they were coming over and they would ask us a question. And then we'd answer the question and they'd say, oh, do that again. And I was like, what the heck? I don't remember mm-hmm. exactly what I said. <laughs> and, you know, uh-huh. and they were just kind of, you know, perusing through and they would take us individually and they'd ask us questions. And then they took all of this video and they presented it to the producer or whatever. And mm-hmm. they got back with us and said, all oh, they, they really loved us. We weren't controversial enough because right. we we were all family and we got along great. So I think they thought because it was family that we had all this angst, and, you know, and everything. I don't know. Um, and so we didn't have anything bad to say about anybody that was near us, you know, salon across the street or anything like that. And mm-hmm. it was kind of very strange to realize that they didn't want us because we wouldn't say anything bad about each other or the other um, salons in the area. And so that's kind of along the same theme. It was like that it wasn't controversial enough. So they weren't interested. Mm-hmm. Yep. No fireworks. Yeah. No flash. Nothing to see here. Yeah. Yeah. No nudity. <laughs> yeah, no, no fighting. Yeah. Not in the salon. No. <laughs> Charge extra for that. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> So I have a question for you. You know, all this stuff that you and Tony are doing and you've got this book coming out and um, which I really want to hear about um, when that's going to, if you have a projected date and all that stuff for that. Um, And I will tell you that I will be putting all of your info, your links and stuff in the description. And it's very easy for me to go back and add that one piece in once you it's out and you've got a link. I can, I can mm-hmm. share that with everybody. So everybody Super. that's watching or listening, you know, kind of keep a lookout because we'll have a link in there at some point. But what I'm wondering is with going through all of this and you're meeting amazing people and you're hearing amazing mm-hmm. stories and you and Tony already had this amazing love with each other, with yourselves and with each other. And so What is it that you feel like you've really gotten from this whole process? And what do you hope that other people get from that? For myself, um, are you familiar with uh, what's called The Four Understandings? The book, Mm -hmm. The Four Understandings? 
No, uh, I got no, I know the four agreements, but not the four the, understandings. Yeah, the, oh, I'm sorry, it is the four agreements. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I was thinking the four under the four understandings of love is what we do. Okay. Um, the the four agreements, uh, I don't think really set in with me. You know, your work being impeccable, always doing your best. You know, the the things that was it Coelho um, that wrote the book um, said really didn't sink into me until I started this work. Um, I think because <laughs> I'm fairly introverted and uh, maybe that's a product of, you know, the upbringing, um, have always been, had a sort of cerebral take on most things and was never really hyper-connected. Um, I think that this work has really made, given me a much deeper understanding and appreciation of that sort of sense of human connection and why you know, the four agreements are not just something that we do personally, but it's a responsibility that we have to one another, um, which is another thing that, you know, love teaches us is that it's not us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's not, it's not us, it's us, yes. <laughs> all of us. Um, and as far as everyone else, you know, one of the main thing, you know, we've, we've got four main understandings that we've I talked earlier about the threads that sort of run through all these different disciplines and philosophies and and spirits and cultures and science. Um, and the four things that we've discovered are, uh, I'll, I'll give it away. All right. <laughs> number one, love is not a feeling or an action. It's a state of being. And that mm -hmm. has profound implications for the way that we treat one another and the way that we understand our love and our relationships. Number two is there aren't different kinds of it. People think that there's, you know, there, well, there's this kind of love and there's that kind of love. Um, there's a love that you have for, you know, ice cream and there's a love that you have for your wife. And these are somehow different things. No, you're just let's go back to, say, your sense of humor or a sense of curiosity. That is one thing. You can be curious about many things. You can find a lot of things funny, but that you have a sense of humor. You have a love. It's part of your being. The ways that you employ it, it's almost like the way that genes are expressed differently. Two people can have exactly the same genes, but they express themselves differently. So mm -hmm. your love is kind of like that. There aren't different kinds of it. Love is one thing. Um, love is not given or received. It isn't something, and I'll give you a, a for instance of how this works if you want. It's part of sure. the speeches that I give. Um, there, love is not something that you get from other people, and it's not something that you can give to them. And that also has profound uh, implications for our relationships. And love is everywhere. It doesn't belong in some places and not in others, and it can be found no matter where you are. Those are the four things that all, everyone that we've talked to in faith and religion and culture, ultimately, it boils down to those four things. Um, and for that third one, this is one that's really difficult for people to understand sometimes because, gosh, it sure feels like we do. It feels like when you love someone, you're giving them something. And when they love you, they're giving you something back. But I'll harken back to my science teacher days. The, meta the analogy that I often use is the sun. We get no heat from the sun, even though <laughs> it sure feels like we do. But there's nothing, there's nothing solid, there's no matter, there's insufficient solid matter or gases in space for heat to conduct or to convect. There's no way for that heat to move. Instead, the sun's energy is radiant. 
And that radiant energy, when it strikes the earth, it excites the molecules of all the matter that's down here, all the waters and oceans and people talking on podcasts and teachers and dogs and everything that's down here is made of the same basic stuff. And when that enter, that radiant energy hits that stuff, it causes it to vibrate. And the force of that vibration generates heat within the matter of which those things are made. We're not getting any heat from the sun, but it warms us. Mm -hmm. We don't give love to someone else. They're warming something. They're awakening something that's already within us. And that's why I say, you know, your love does not depend on anyone else. They can certainly awaken it and, and warm it and make you aware of it. But it's always there, just like it is for them. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not giving them something. You're awakening something that's already within them. And it's something that we all share. It's part of our common consciousness. And, you know, when I when I say that, when I start talking, you know, going into consciousness studies and get into that element of what we're doing, I got to be honest, 10 years ago, that would have all sounded like patchouli smoke and hippies sitting <laughs> in a tree playing the flute stuff. To me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but after talking with people in, you know, one of the most fascinating interviews I did in the course of writing the book was with a man named Dr. Even Alexander. Um, Dr. Alexander is a former professor of neuro, neurosurgery at Harvard Medical, and he's also one of the world's foremost experts in near-death experience because he had one. Mm -hmm. And so his take on, you know, what love means after death and what life means after this thing that we call life um, was profound. And I juxtaposed that in the book with um, the psychology conference that I'm talking to in October is actually the uh, specialization in pre and perinatal psychology. They deal with birth psychology. And I interviewed one of the former directors of that, the uh, agent, the professional associations putting on that convention on what love looks like before birth. You know, mm -hmm. how is how how does love affect the actual production of life? And so we've got stories about love from just outside the boundaries, too. And they're even in finding agreement on these four key understandings. And, and the main one and the reason I put it first is that love is not an action. It's not something that you do. It's not something that you feel. You do and feel things because of it. And sometimes mm -hmm. we confuse those things with love itself. But love is a state of your being. It's part of who we are. And and I draw a distinction. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a minute for a really deep thought? Yeah, yeah. I love deep thoughts. As, as I'm going through this in the book, one of the issues that I came up with is um, quantum physics shows us rather convincingly um, through the double slit experiment and, and, and other means that consciousness, the observer affects what they're observing. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, it's, the observer effect is real. It's demonstrable. We know mm -hmm. that a, con a conscious agent affects the reality around it. Well, if that's the case and everything is one thing, what that means is scientifically, you know, quantum physics is the, is the cutting edge of science and it's the best supported scientific model that we have of the universe. What that means is that there has to be some kind of universal consciousness. There has to be some ultimate thought that causes reality to be what it is. And to me, as a former science teacher, to me, that's a scientific question, not a religious one. Mm -hmm. And so when I tell people, I go way out on a limb and I say, you know, love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a state of being. Oh, and by the way, God is not a religious principle. <laughs> it's not a religious, not a religious idea. It's a scientific one, and it's just a it's just a matter of logic. 
But when we use that term, and in the consciousness studies address that I do, when we use that term God, that comes loaded with so much baggage. Doesn't it? Because then we start arguing about definitions and mythologies and, and comparative studies, and it just takes us so far afield. And so in the book, rather than say, and I say, I'm not going to say God, except just now, because I did. I have to, so you know what we're talking about. But what we're really talking about is just the ultimate consciousness. Just everything is one thing. And we know that that one thing is affected by an overall consciousness. That one consciousness, that big thought, the, the biggest of beings. And I thought, that's perfect. Biggest of beings. And so throughout the book, I just referred to it as Bob. Okay. It's just, perfect. just the perfect. Acro acronym for biggest of beings. Yeah, that sounds perfect. <laughs> so... Um, you know, um, when you were talking about the quantum physics and how it changes, the observer changes things, you know, that's right. one of the things that I've always, well, I can't say always, since I've been getting into this stuff, I've been very, mm -hmm. very fascinated with that and how, um, you know, people, because some of the studies that they did, not only did this observer that was right here change it, he could change it in another room as well. And, mm -hmm. you know, that just is, it just is mind blowing to me. Well, and change it after the fact. Yeah. Knowing the time is no obstacle either. Yeah. 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 So um, all of that stuff is just amazing. And so one of the things that, um, and I'm sure you've heard a lot about it is, you know, the, um, the vibrational scale and sure. whatever different things vibrate at and love vibrates at, I don't even remember what it is, um, to be honest with you, but there used to be a lady that I, um, I studied under a little bit and she would always talk about, you wanted to keep your vibration at love or above. And, um, <laughs> That's nice. yeah, oh, I love yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that was always what I was trying to do. It's not always easy. It's simple. It's not always easy. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm just wondering, are, do you feel like, you know, because she's talking about the vibration of love. So is that something totally separate from what you're saying about the being love? Am I even asking the question correctly? I'm, I'm not sure if I understand the question exactly, but I think if I, from what I'm hearing, I would say, no, I don't think it's the same thing because okay. what you're describing is probably something that is going to be measurable. It's a, what's called a neurocorrelate, mm -hmm. um, some activity in the brain or some physiological response that we can plot on a chart and say, you know, we know that this thing operates at this frequency, this wavelength. And, you know, those are physiological reactions or, or, the neurocorrelates are basically brain activity that correlates with things that you're thinking or feeling. Um, and I hate to keep going off on the deep end on you here, but this oh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm all for it. It's just so it. fascinating. We don't really know. And this is one thing I was amazed when I talked to Dr. Alexander and some of the other people in neuroscience, we don't know what consciousness is. We don't know what causes a conscious experience, you know, what causes, what, what, what causes this sort of holistic, subjective, combined experience that we call consciousness. We we can look at the brain and we can see different areas light up and we say, oh, well, you know, this area is lighting up when you feel this thing. Therefore, this brain area is connected to that emotion. And that very well may be. But it also may be that the brain is not producing these things. It's receiving them. 
And if you looked at if you looked at the electronics inside a radio, let's say uh, you know on your cell phone, when an electronic signal goes through your cell phone and you hear a voice, you don't think it's coming from your phone. You know that it's the phone's just a receiver of that information. Mm -hmm. You know, it's receiving data and it's producing uh, you know an output that's then readable by whoever's interpreting it. Your brain very well may be working the same way. You know, the brain is not what what neuroscience is starting to show us the cutting edge of neuroscience is that the brain does not produce consciousness it receives it and that makes total sense when you if you understand the universe as being you know this thing that's guided by an overall consciousness it would make a whole lot more sense it's less moving parts for your brain to be receiving something that's already a fundamental part of the universe rather than this somehow magical thing that we can't explain where consciousness just pops out of three pounds of inorgan of organic matter in your head that's a when you, when you look at it that way that's a logical leap that it's much more difficult to make than saying you know we are all part of this one thing we're receiving and expressing it so back to your original question you know the the vibrational uh, frequency of love that may be measured as a neurocorrelate in the brain or some kind of physiological response but i think that love itself is probably going to transcend anything that we're going to be capable of measuring in the traditional sense that we're talking about with those things. Does that make sense back? It does. <laughs> it makes sense back. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so what is your um, census from your book and all these studies and everything that, um, because you started this journey to talk to people about what is love, right? Mm -hmm. And so what is it that helps me as a, as a human to have that love within me? Is that, um, God, I don't even know how to ask oh, this question. You're at, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think in effect, what I'm hearing you ask is something I, I really can't answer. What you're asking me is yeah. how do I love or how do I love better? Um, how do I know this is love? You know, we get all these variations on this question. Yeah. Um, well, what I as, was thinking as, is if, if love is not a feeling, it's not emotion, then how do we know it's there? It's not an emotion. We can't feel <laughs> it. We. That's what I'm meaning. How, how, how do you know your sense of humor is there? How do you know? Well, I guess if somebody says something and I laugh, then I guess I have a sense uh -huh. of humor. Or if if you have a sense of curiosity, how do you know that that's there? It just demonstrates. Yeah, it, it manifests somehow. There's something that catches your attention, that, that mm -hmm. you feel this, this part of what you are, this your state of being, this receiver that you have is making you aware of those things. Mm -hmm. And so love being part of you is why you perceive it. Um, so the closest I can get to answering your question is something that, that I talk about in the book. And that's one of the questions is, well, why do we love? You know, uh, once we get to the point in the book where I'm going, okay, we well, can kind of identify some commonalities in it. We kind of know what it is a lot better than we did before. But why? It's not something that happens. It's something that is. Why? Why is it? And the best answer I can come up with so far <laughs> is we love what grows us. 
We love what grows our souls. That when we talk, when I use that metaphor of the sun, you know, we don't get warmth from the sun. We love the things that warm us and we're aware of them because we love. That's why, you know, for a person whose life is fulfilled and rich with, you know, social connections with people and, and doing good works and charity and the kinds of things that, that we sort of attribute to a loving person, they're doing that because it's making them bigger inside. Mm-hmm. And this is one of, when I talk to, when I talk to students, this is the, the analogy, the, the, it's the term that I use. We love what makes us bigger. And part of what makes us bigger, part of what makes me bigger is when you are. That's why teachers love what they do. Mm-hmm. When we can look at you and say, you are somehow more than what you were before because of what we shared together. Oh God, to us, that's that's the purpose of life. That is love. So you know your love is there when you experience it. And as far as whether it's genuine or not, then you get into all kinds of complicated right. psychology. Well, see, I am I, not, I think I with am me qualified. <laughs> as being a, a life and a health coach, um, one of the things that is prevalent in a, I work primarily with women is that women tend to be so overly critical of themselves, whether it's their body yeah. or what, whatever it may be. Yeah. And there are some people that I've worked with that could not even look at themselves in the eye, in the mirror and say, I love you because they didn't feel it. So mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to see how that correlates with what I do with my clients, you know, to help them to, mm-hmm. to feel that love within. The first thing that occurs to me, it may again be a little bit off the deep end. Um, <laughs> I, hate to, I hate to keep qualifying by saying that, but it really is kind of a meditative technique. Um, and I don't know if it's going to be applicable for you or if it's something that, you know, uh, people have different paths that they take to right. find these same answers. But when you say that, the thing that occurs to me is um, when I have these discussions, with people and we use terms like atman or soul or spirit um, and people you know especially people that are um i don't say atheists because we we tend to use that term too much and incorrectly but basically that don't believe mm-hmm. that you know life that living things have a soul i say well how do you know how, strip away all the thought how are you aware of what you're thinking don't think how are you what makes you aware of that thought? You know, we go back to what, you know, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. He wanted to find the one thing that could not be doubted. And what he arrived at is a piece of, in, of indubitable logic and still beautiful to this day. The fact that I'm thinking, even if what I'm thinking is wrong, even if what I'm thinking, I'm being fooled into thinking, I'm still aware. I'm still aware that I'm thinking it. When you strip away all thought, when you strip away everything, all this, that flood of, Oh, am I doing this right? Am I loving correctly? Am I, how am I, am I my body? And, you know, when you let all that go, there's still a part of you that doesn't react to any of that. It's just aware of it. That's your spirit. There's a part of you deep inside that is simply aware of all these thoughts and all these feelings. It's aware of your existence. It's that part of you that is that universal consciousness. And, and again, I just, it sounds so flowery to say that, but it's true. No, I, I, uh, and, I, and so I, for I people, for people that. that struggle, for people that struggle with those things, I would say, you know, find, 
a place if it's possible. And it takes, for many people, it takes years of meditation to even find that spot, that quiet place where you're, you let all the thoughts happen. Now, one of the mistakes that people make in meditation oftentimes is that they're trying to stop right. negative thoughts. No, right. don't. You're, that's a never ending battle. It's not going to happen for most people. It takes the discipline of a lifetime to be able to stop what you're thinking. You have to be it's that Tibetan monk. It's, just yeah and that's for most of us that's not going to happen you know we're thinking a million things at once that's why sometimes we suffer from insomnia we just our heads just won't shut up just let it let it happen just find that place in yourself where you're aware that it's happening you're not reacting to it you're not judging it's the key to happiness is not judging things I can tell you that, but people ask us, well, what's the key to, you know, secret to love? I don't know, but I can tell you what'll make you unhappy. That's judgments and comparisons. That's That's a whole other stories there. Um, But that part of you that is simply there, it's aware of all those negative feelings. It's aware of the love. It's, you know, you find that and you'll find the love within yourself because the love within yourself is part of that awareness. And that's right. what I've been trying to get across to people about this being part of your state of being. It's such an essential part of life. Yeah. One of my favorite books is um, by Michael Singer and it's the untethered soul. Oh yeah. Um, that's yep. my favorite book. And I always recommend it to all of my clients to, um, <laughs> to read, not all oh. of them do, but um, yeah, that's um, and the, the surrender experiment that was even better. And So Mm -hmm. I've been on that journey, you know, with learning all of that thing, that stuff for quite a long time. And I've tried to help my clients with it and actually became a hypnotherapist so that not only could I help them there, I could help them with a little bit of hypnosis to help kind of boost whatever it is that they're wanting to change, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's like, sometimes I can tell people or let's just say I can tell a client that, you know, let's, let's start working on the love of self, you know, and it's, I'm always blown away with how hard that can be for some people to actually Mm -hmm. put themselves in a place where they're deserving of love and that kind of thing. And um, so I'm kind of just, I'm just, it's like all of this stuff has just got my mind just going like crazy, you know, um, Good. Good. <laughs> because like I said, it's I think if, that if we have a with. pardon, sure. No, I was going to say, I think if, if we have a mission in life with one another um, I, or missions in life, I think one of them is to help each other think and feel things deeply. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no greater compliment than, than when I finish a speaking engagement or a podcast guest parents or, you know, talking to anybody when they say that, thank you mm-hmm. I, yeah. to, to look at me and say, wow, you really made me think about this stuff. Yeah. Thank you. I had a, I had a student leave my room. I, I gave this lesson on the relativity of time and black holes to a group of 13 year olds, which is, if you can, if you can get through the relativity of time and general relativity with 13 year olds and, and they're coming back to you and they go, they're all excited about what they learned. And I had a kid come up to me and she says, my brain hurts. <laughs> Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Our job here is done. <laughs> I know that's how I feel when I've worked with a client and I can see the difference in them over time of, you know, right. how they're showing up for themselves. And to me, that's the the whole, the whole amazing thing of life is to show up for yourself and be who you are mm. and 
and and I know you said love's not it's you feel an emotion about love, but it's like to feel that love for yourself. Yeah. You know? Oh, you can feel it. I'm not saying when I say it's not an emotion, it's not a feeling. I'm not, I, I don't mean that you can't feel it, you know, but what you're feeling probably has a lot of different names. You know, oh, yeah. is it, you know, is it compassion? Is it, um, uh, uh, genuine, you know, um, duty? Is it, um, you know, all these things that we call it, you can certainly, feel those things and there's nothing in the world wrong with saying i feel the love oh yeah you do you're, yeah you're, you're feeling you're feeling that facet of it absolutely so i don't mean to suggest that there's no such thing as feeling love um you're just not all at once <laughs> we, we, we we couldn't we, we don't yeah have... yeah <laughs> Uh, I almost go off on a whole nother tangent. Dr. <laughs> Dan Hoffman is, gives this brilliant speech on the um, existence of reality and how our perceptions are designed to govern how much reality we receive. We tend to think, well, you know, I, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, you're seeing, you know, 0.053% of visible light, which is a very tiny spectrum of the electromagnetic slice of the electromagnetic magnetic spectrum, you're not seeing reality. You're mm -hmm. seeing the parts of reality that allow you to live in this existence right now. And I think to a large extent, and I, I'm hoping to have this conversation with him one day, I think to a large extent, our understanding of love is very similar. You know, we only hear within a very narrow range of frequencies. We only see within a narrow band of visible light um, touch what's within arm's reach. And I think uh, to a large extent, there's our experience of love is always going to be incomplete as long as we're experiencing it in this sort of <laughs> limited, I don't say limited form, but, um, you know, there's love is so vast and so fundamental to the nature of the universe and any any aspect of it that we can bring into our lives that enriches us is always going to be good, but it's always going to be such a small piece of what's actually out there. <laughs> yeah. What is it that they say that there are 10, is it 10,000? I don't know. I'm, I'm probably off on the numbers of things that are around us all the time that we, mm -hmm. we could see. Um, and right. we see, what is it like? Uh, a thousand maybe I don't even know I, I used to know mm -hmm. that number but it's just gone <laughs> out of my head and so as we're looking around there are uh, just a plethora of other things that are there mm -hmm. for us to see and we don't see it because that's not what's in our our focus the same as when you get a new car that you've never seen on the road but you just really loved it and then suddenly they're everywhere and it's mm -hmm. our focus is on that now that to me is exactly is amazing yeah yeah and and what a brilliant metaphor what a brilliant comparison we can draw from that to how much of the love that's in the world that's all around us all the time that as latanya said that's available that we're just not perceiving yeah it's there it's there it's in every it's in the stories of every person we've talked to it's in the lives of uh it's in our history it's in our science it's in our faith it's just so integral and such uh joy you know it's yeah. the reason for our existence Right. So and I and I and I can prove that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So the thing to be is to be open to to seeing the love because that's when we can't see it is if we're we're closed down and we're not open to it. So 
Right. Just right? That, that's that sense of sort of central awareness of just let all the thoughts about it go. Just be aware that it's there. It's within you. It's within others. Yeah, all this other, all these other things are complications. They're they're thoughts and they're you know splinters and things that that we throw in there that can complicate things. And what I said before, you know, I, I know I threw it out as kind of an aside, but it's true. When one of the questions we commonly get asked, you know, outside of the secret of love thing, which we discovered is a really bad question, <laughs> <laughs> but but there is there there are things that you can put your finger on that do make people unhappy and. Because they're unhappy, they're obstacles to their awareness of love. And the primary, the primary of those things is judgments and comparisons, mm -hmm. especially in, you know, especially in relationships, you know, which is where we started. So we have we're versed a, a little bit in that area. Um, you know, if couples that make comparisons of their relationship to other relationships or their spouse to other people or the way they are to some ideal that they had about the way things are supposed to be, those mm -hmm. things always make people unhappy. Yeah. Because the reason you're making judgments and comparisons is because you're already feeling inadequate. Yeah. And just Bad, like I, totally I shared earlier, better than everybody. Yeah. And just like <laughs> I shared earlier, the people that were looking at comparisons to might not even be the truth of what they have anyway. And you're comparing mm -hmm. yourself to something that's not even real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <laughs> when you say that there's, there's another interesting parallel we can draw to something that came out in the book. Um, Oftentimes, when people find themselves with those kinds of doubts and uncertainties and and you know anxieties uh, about relationships and and love, but about everything else too, um, they they tend to want to ask others, "Well, how do you see this? You know, how do you? What am I like to you? You know, we want to let's get a cosmopolitan survey going about me <laughs> and see, you know." And that's just never going to be totally accurate in the same regard that, and this was always a delight for me when I was teaching. Um, one of the things that kids don't understand when I would record them, if I record their voices or I record them on video, almost every kid hates the way they sound in a recording. And what they hate even more is when I tell them that's what your voice actually sounds like, because what you're hearing is the sound waves of your voice reverberating through the atmosphere, reverberating through the air. That's the way your voice comes across to other people. The only person in the world that hears you the way you do is you, because mm -hmm. you're the only one that's hearing those sound waves reverberating through your skull. Your voice doesn't actually sound like that. It sounds like, so it really is fundamentally different between, you know, what's in here and what's out there. And mm -hmm. I think our perceptions of ourselves are oftentimes the same way. We are the only people that see us yeah. sort of the way we do. And we can never really totally communicate that to someone else. So your point about, you know, loving yourself, and that's a theme with a lot of people we talk to, that's so important to be, just to be aware, not to judge, not to compare, just to be aware that that's part of you. That's where that self-love comes from. Mm -hmm. And that's how you build that sort of, you know, strong sense of center um, and the ability to love yourself. It isn't something that you have to do. It's something you have to be. And God, it's hard to tell people, how do I be that? <laughs> but you know it's kind of the the same thing as we don't see ourselves physically like other people do because uh -huh. when we're looking at ourselves we're looking at a mirror image of us which is the exact exactly. opposite of what we are and mm -hmm. um so 
it's uh, it's really fascinating about that too. Not only do we not hear ourselves the same as what other people do, but we don't even see ourselves the same. Mm-hmm. And plus, people are seeing us from their lens of the world as well. Yep. So it, that may not even that's probably not even an accurate um, vision of who we are either. So yeah, our our self perception is always different. Yeah, than yeah. what it is with other people. The I think part of the key there is 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 looking at that fact and going, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> because you know, in the end, if that center is there, if that love is there, you can look at yourself and say, okay, I may not totally understand myself, but I kind of like who I am. That's oftentimes yeah. that's enough. Yeah, that's and enough. that's. That's where I, I I hope to bring most people to is I like me yeah. just like I am. I don't have to do this and do that or change this and change that to be um, a lovable person. And right. I can be that just now. To make my love what it should be when it's going to be what it is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And it's something, and and I don't know how much time we have, but I wanted to to just throw this one last quote out there with you because okay. um, one of the things that in the TED talk that I gave, um, one of the quotes that which I, I did watch Joseph by Campbell, the way, I watched that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, he, um, you know, Campbell had this brilliant of, of the many brilliant things he had to say. He said, you know, every story, every story you hear, is your own. Story. As human beings, we are all part of a collective story. So when you start doubting yourself, think of your favorite hero tale, because that's part of you, too. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, being part of a collective means that we are so much more together, you know, than we can be separately. The The sense of separateness and division between us is an illusion. Yes, definitely. Well, we are getting close to time. I'm looking at it. So um, <laughs> this has been fascinating. Storytelling. I have, hey, I have been loved awesome. every minute of it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And if um, if anybody out there has any other questions or they want to get in touch with us, you can always reach us through our website, um, which is easy to remember. It's journeystolove.com um, or through my speaking website, which is scottburns.com. All right. Perfect. And I will, um, in the description afterwards, I will put all the links so people don't have to go and type anything out. They can just click right on the link and they're there. (laughs) Um, And just as a quick reminder, as soon as you're, oh, I was going to ask you, when is, when is the book supposed to be out? Do you know? Uh, The book is currently part of our business plan. It's in the hands of two literary agents right now, but depending on where that track goes, we may end up self-publishing. So I will keep update. I'll keep updates on, there's an update on it on our website. Okay. Um, and if anybody wants to know when it's coming out, what the progress is, they can always check there. Okay. Thanks for thanks for bringing it up. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here, and definitely keep me in the loop on that because I really want to be able to put the link to the book, and I want to get the book as well. So thanks, I appreciate um, that. So I'll get the book, and then I'll put the link on all my stuff so that everybody can um, can get it very easily. So thanks, this has you. definitely been a pleasure, and. Um, For everybody that is listening or watching, I hope you've enjoyed this much as much as I have, um, because it's definitely been a little bit of a stretch in certain areas. And (laughs) I love having those kinds of conversations. So with that said, have a blessed life and full of self-love.